If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All the people out of jobs the Democrats are using to push, what are they pushing for? Changing the emission standards on airplanes. Mr. President, what the hell do the emission standards on airplanes have to do with thousands of people dying and millions of people out of work in the coronavirus epidemic? Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. I am Michael Knowles. We have a lot to get to. Uh, We have to answer that question. What the hell do emission standards have to do with coronavirus? The Senate has just voted on the coronavirus stimulus package, a $2 trillion package, the largest stimulus in American history. It is after midnight on the East Coast, and I am joined as ever in the middle of the night by one of the senators who voted on that, Senator Cruz. Senator Cruz, what did we just see? Well, Michael, good morning. Uh, it is 1227 <laughs> in the morning. And and once again, you know, it feels like deja vu all over again. It's, you know, when we got <laughs> got got started on the verdict podcast, it was during uh, d- during impeachment. And it seemed every night we would be there till midnight, one, two in the morning and then head straight to the studio. So I just came from voting on the Senate floor. As you noted, the vote was unanimous. It was 96 to nothing. Every single Republican voted yes. Every single Democrat voted yes. And we just passed out a $2 trillion emergency relief package, uh, which, which, which hopefully will have significant effects uh, relieving the ep- economic devastation being caused by this corona crisis. 
Well, I want to get into exactly what is in this package, because obviously there is a lot and some of it is controversial. But before we get to what is in it, I want to get to why we are sitting here in the middle of the night. You know, this bill was supposed to be voted on, I think, over the weekend. Then it was supposed to maybe be voted on yesterday, then earlier today. And here we are. It's after midnight. So I want to know why this was so delayed. And I guess more specifically, I want to know who delayed the vote. Well, that's an easy answer. It's it's two people. It's Nancy Pelosi and it's Chuck Schumer. Uh, everybody thought we were going to vote on this Sunday night. Uh, the, the the bill had been negotiated with about a dozen Democrats were part of the negotiating teams. They they had all been active and engaged, and and, and we thought we were going to take it up Sunday night and get it passed. Nancy Pelosi came in at the last minute and she threw a hand grenade in. She began making all of these completely unrelated partisan demands. And, and we showed up Sunday night and every single Democrat voted to block our uh, getting oh. on the bill or even starting to consider it. And so they blocked it on Sunday night. They blocked it Monday, all day Tuesday, all day today uh, until just about 11 o'clock uh, last night when we fin- finally got it passed. So as you noted in that clip we played at the beginning, which, by the way, I thought was terrific. I was a, a big fan of, of you really calling calling it like it is here and saying, what do emission standards, what does the Green New Deal yeah. have to do with coronavirus? So it looks as though the Democrats totally backed down. I, I mean, I, I don't know, though. You were there all day. Did the Democrats achieve anything by stalling the vote? What's the good stuff in the bill? What's the bad stuff in the bill? Uh, well, look, it, it, it's complicated. Most of the extraneous partisan issues that, that, that Pelosi was fighting for, almost all of them have dropped out of the bill. So, so, so that's okay. good. That What she held everything hostage for Sunday and Monday and Tuesday is mostly gone. So, so, so what's passed? Look, it's what, $2 trillion is a crap a lot of money. ton of money. I mean, I mean, I mean <laughs> that's, that's 10% of our national debt. Not our deficit, mm. 10% of our national debt. In over two centuries, we just spent 10% of it tonight. Wow. Um, and, and it's worth pausing to think. That was unanimous. That means Bernie Sanders voted for it, I voted for it, and everybody in between voted for it. Mm. And, and, and what I would say is the reason is uh, these are not normal times. This crisis is extraordinary. The health crisis is extraordinary. People are scared. Um, we've got a global pandemic, but not only the health crisis, but the response to the health crisis has has created an economic disaster that is unfolding. There, there are millions of people losing their jobs. And, and, and in response to that devastation, everyone feels an urgency to provide relief. Now, now you mentioned at the outset, and this is something a lot of people are saying, they're referring it to it as stimulus. I don't call this a stimulus bill. Hmm. This is a relief bill. It's quite different. It is designed to provide relief to people who are hurting badly and are hurting through no fault of their own. Uh, They didn't do anything to cause this. So so what are the different pieces? What's in this monstrous bill? Yeah. So one big piece of it is individual relief. And and for every American in the country who makes under $100,000 a year, you're getting a check. You're getting a check in the next couple of weeks Individual adults are getting $1,200 each. A couple's getting $2,400 each. Uh, And if you have kids, you get $500 each for those kids. And those checks are expected to go out. According to the Treasury Department, they're going to get them out in two to three weeks. So sometime probably early to mid-April is when those checks are going to arrive. 
And for correct a lot of, me if I'm wrong, th- this is unprecedented, right? I mean, we've never seen the federal government mailing checks to this large a number of Americans for direct relief. Uh, the, the, the only thing comparable to, the, to this was during the 2008 crisis. There was a, a smaller set of rebate checks that were sent out under the Bush administration, but it wasn't nearly as significant as this. This is much more broad-based, and, and these are bigger checks. Look, if you're you look at restaurants that have been shut down all across the country. You look at bars. You look at 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 hardware stores or nail salons. There are a lot of people who are hourly workers who suddenly finding themselves at home and and are scared. Right. How am I going to make the rent check next month? Right. Um, you know, how am I going to pay the basic expenses? How are we going to pay for food? And and so these checks are providing relief on a broad based. Uh, manner. It's not picking winners and losers. It's providing it across the board. Most most economists agree that's not going to be a, a major stimulus effect, but it is hmm. going to help people who are worried and being hurt by this right now. Right. I mean, people, you know, they can't afford to not work for a month or however long this is going to go on. So the idea is that's going to fill the gap. And hopefully you can take 1200 bucks and put it toward your rent or, or whatever bill is due. Uh, what else is in the bill, you know, especially in terms of I know it was controversial that there's a loan program for businesses to stay afloat. The Democrats were very against that. What does that program look like? Well, well, well let me get to the uh, another major part of part of the bill that I think is really important is there's three hundred and seventy seven billion dollars for small businesses. And, yep. and, and this is an emergency loan program that, that, that is going to go to small businesses, essentially businesses with 500 employees or less. So, so the hardware stores and barber shops and restaurants that we talked about, all these folks that are, 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 are shuttered right now and, and are on the verge of bankruptcy, mm-hmm. uh, they can now, you can now go, if you're a small business owner, you can go and apply for a loan and you can get it. It's a small business administration loan, but you can get it from your local bank. It's from all of the local banks in the community that you can go and apply for it. And it's yeah. up to $10 million. So it's small loans, relatively speaking, but they're designed in particular to meet costs like payroll, to meet costs like rent, the, the, yeah. the basic costs that you have that you don't want to lose your business. And the way it's designed, if you spend the money on payroll, if you if you say to your employees, we're going to keep paying you, we're going to keep your paycheck coming, then those loans are forgivable. So for the small business uh-huh. owner, you can take the loan, and if you if you actually pay it out to your employees, the, the loan obligation goes away. And so that's a direct lifeline mm-hmm. uh, to these small businesses that, that, that are profoundly hurting, and a lot of them are making the decision right now do I stay ho- open or do I shutter the right. door? Right. So th- well, th- this th- I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, th- yeah. this is a very important point here because, you know, as we see the unemployment rate ticking up, you had claims last week for unemployment that were comparable, if not higher, than you saw at the peak of the 2009 crisis. Uh, I mean, you could have massive unemployment. You could have businesses falling apart. So this would allow the businesses to continue to employ their workers. Right. And that means people keep a connection to their job. It means they keep their health insurance, which is a big challenge for everyone. If you lose your job, you may be losing your health insurance. So we'd rather as many people as possible to stay employed, to stay in a position that when we get past this crisis, hopefully sooner rather than later, that everyone go go back to work, that we want to get the economy moving again. And so these small business loans, again, are unprecedented. I mean, to give you a sense, the Small Business Administration's budget, I think last year, was $23 billion. Yeah. This is $377 billion. So this is more, more than 10 times wow. the size of the Small Business Administration's 
entire budget, but all of that money is designed to flow out through the community banks to small businesses and, and, and to be used for payroll predominantly and other essential costs like rent and utilities just to keep the businesses yeah. open. So well, I, I know that this, this brings up another question on employment that was yeah. really central to the debate today, and you played a central role in this, which is some Republican senators, uh, I think Lindsey Graham mentioned it, and you spoke out very forcefully against it, identified in the bill a provision that would actually incentivize people not to go back to work. Uh, what was that provision and where does that stand right now? So part of this bill, and, and one of the things in particular the Democrats demanded as a price of, of supporting this bill, was increasing unemployment insurance comp compensation. So when, you're, when you file for unemployment in your states, the federal government is, is plussing up those, the, those uh, weekly compensation, and, and plussing it up dramatically is basically adding $600 a week to what you can earn from unemployment. So, wow. so, so what does that mean? And listen, I, most Republicans, I think that is a good thing. We are going to see this week when the job numbers comes out, we're going to see millions of Americans who have lost their jobs yeah. in the last two weeks. I mean, it has been, I've spoken to at least a dozen CEOs in the last week who've laid off thousands or tens of thousands of employees. I mean, it's just one after the other after the other. And 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 if you're suddenly laid off having unemployment and, and, and enough to, to support your family is important. So I think plussing it up made sense. Here's the problem. The way it is designed it, the $600 is irrespective of what you were making before, hmm. which means, like, I'll give you an example in Texas. So right now in Texas, the maximum someone can make on unemployment uh, is $521 a week. That's, that, that, that's what the state unemployment will, and, and that's, that's based on your income. Yeah. We're now adding 600 bucks a week to that. So instead of $521 <laughs> a week in Texas, it's now $1,121 a week. It's a nice raise. Uh, that is a very nice race, but here's the problem. There's no constraint on, on whether it is more than you were making in your job. And, hmm. and, and so I and a number of other senators, we introduced an amendment today, just a common sense amendment that said, look, you should not make more on unemployment than you were making working. It's common sense, right? <laughs> um, and, and we had, uh, so we debated it on the Senate floor. It was interesting, actually, an astonishing thing broke out on the Senate floor, real debate. Uh, Dick yeah. Durbin, a, you know, Democrat from Illinois, was arguing back and forth. And, and our amendment just was a simple proposition that you shouldn't be paid more in unemployment than you were making in your job. And, and the reason is you don't want to disincentivize work. I'll, I'll use the Texas example. $1,121 a week, that's a little bit over $58,000 a year. Now, it's four months worth, but, but annualized, that's fifty-eight grand a year. That works out to over $28 an hour. Mm-hmm. The problem is if we're paying people that much not to work, it incentivizes people not to work. And it was very Why would you ever go back to your job? Well, and the, and the back and forth, so Durbin did what a lot of Democrats did, which is he demagogued. He said, oh, these Republicans are saying anyone unemployed is lazy and rotten. And, and I said, hold on a second. We're saying exactly the opposite, which is this policy will hurt workers and it'll hurt small businesses. Why? Let, let's say you're a waitress. And, and, and you've been, been laid off from your job, you're getting unemployment, but suddenly you're making $25, $26, $28 an hour at home, not working. And you face the decision, do I go back to work for $10, $12, $15 an hour? I, it, we're creating incentives 
where, where it would be perfectly rational to say, I'm not going to go back to work because I make a lot more money on unemployment. That, yeah, of that hurts the workers. It also hurts small businesses. Let's say you're trying to reopen your restaurant. The, the, the shutdown has stopped in your city. You want people to come back. You call up your old employees and they say, look, I'd love to come back to work, but, but I can't afford the pay cut. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> you got to match my unemployment salary. So that, I think, was an unfortunate mistake. And we ended up the amendment lost. It was basically a party line vote. I think every Democrat voted against it except Joe Manchin. He was the one. Yes. But I, I think that was unfortunate. But it, it nonetheless, there will be significant benefits from the additional unemployment insurance in this time of crisis. Right. Um, OK, that. That makes sense. I, I uh, it's too bad, unfortunately, that that seems to have been left in the bill. But I, I guess obviously there's a lot of debate here, and you did come to a unanimous vote. However, I I have to pick up on what you said. You said the vote was 96 to zero. There's more than 96 senators. Some people were missing. Yeah. Now we've got got several senators who who are out out on quarantine, and 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 where that started from was 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 a few days ago. Um, Rand Paul tested positive for the coronavirus, That's and right. uh, and and he had been in in D.C. the whole week. And and actually, the way we found out about it, so so we were meeting every day for lunch, the Republican senators. And it was interesting. We shifted. We normally meet in a room in in the Capitol called the Mansfield Room, and and yeah. and it's um, and actually, by the way, the minority meets in the LBJ room, which is a smaller room, but the Mansfield room is bigger. So it's one of the <laughs> things. It was nice in 2014 when we became the majority. We switched our lunchrooms and got to a bigger room. <laughs> That's been nice, nice it, perk. But when coronavirus hit, um, we all wanted to social distance. And so the Mansfield room, we decided, was too small. So we were meeting instead in a conference room, and we moved actually to a couple of different conference rooms that were sort of almost like big auditoriums in one of the Senate office buildings. And so we were in one of those big, big auditoriums where the acoustics were terrible. It's hard for everyone to hear because they're not, they're just, it's not good acoustics. But, but Mitch, every, every day we were meeting for lunch and we'd have often a two, three hour lunch because it would be a progress report on the negotiations of the bill. And, and there were different committees that were working on different portions of the bill. So the people would stand up and say, all right, here's go what's going on with this. And we'd ask questions and we'd debate back and forth. And so a few days ago, we're there and Mitch is talking and he just kind of matter of fact says, um, and so Rand Paul just tested positive for coronavirus. <laughs> and we're all sitting there going, what the what? Like, like, like yeah, I mean, it, it's big news. And Mitch just very matter of fact mentions it and keeps going on. And, and a whole bunch of second, hold on a second. Re can, can you rewind that tape and play it again? And so it was. Um, well, and Rand had been at the Senate. He had been that morning at the Senate gym. He'd been swimming in the pool. Oh, wow. I, I got to say, I don't think I've ever seen my colleagues as pissed off <laughs> right. as they were. Like, he had just gotten the, the positive test results, and then they were pretty angry uh, that he hadn't self-quarantined. Now, now, Rand said he wasn't sick. He had no symptoms. He hadn't come in direct contact with, with the the. He was at a gathering with people who were sick, but he didn't come in direct contact with them. I understand his reasoning. I can tell you people were freaked out. And so I remember we're sitting there going, okay, well, what do we do? I mean, I mean, there are 53 Republicans. The immediate question, all right, are we all quarantined? Like, as you know, I spent 11 days in self-quarantine in Houston. Right. And I'm like, well, 
all of us have been here with Rand. What does this mean now? Um, and what ended up happening is within an hour or two, two people self-quarantined as a result, Mike Lee and Mitt Romney. Yeah. Uh, and the reason is at lunch, they had sat on either side of Rand. They had been huh. at lunch with him. They sat next to him. They'd been there for a couple of hours. And so they decided neither of them are feeling sick. I talked to both. Uh, both Mike and, and, and Mitt this week after they quarantined, they both said they were feeling great, but they self-quarantined because they'd sat next to Rand and spent a couple of hours. You know, I thought about it, but as it so happened this past week, I just didn't run into Rand. In fact, I didn't even, I didn't know he was around. I'll often sit next to him at lunch. I just didn't happen to this week. So it was a good, good week not to sit next to Rand Paul, but it, it puts you in a tough position because as you're all sitting there and uh, leader McConnell tells you, oh, by the way, one of your colleagues has coronavirus, you know, it's a pretty small club there in the U.S. Senate. You're all voting on this very important legislation. If all of the Republicans self-quarantined, what happens to the bill? <laughs> That is was a real issue, and I think that's one of the reasons why all of us said let's move forward and get this done quickly and, and get the hell out of here. Everyone's flying home tomorrow morning, uh, right. and, and the Senate is, is not expected to be in session for several weeks. But, you know, look, if you look at the Senate, there are a lot of people in their 70s and 80s. I mean, you want to talk about a potentially vulnerable population. Yeah. We're trying to stay away from each other. We're trying to, like, social distance. People are pouring hand sanitizer uh, like crazy. But, you know, Rand and, and, and Rand and I traded texts. He said he's feeling good and feeling healthy. But you remember Rand, uh, what was it, a year or two That's ago? right. His neighbor tackled him, broke six ribs. The ribs punctured his lungs. He got pneumonia, and they did surgery and removed part of his lung. And, and so what's, had... sca what's scary about this is Rand, with, with, with part of his lung removed, is, is in a vulnerable position where he's more vulnerable if he gets COVID-19, if he gets sick, he's potentially more vulnerable. And so that's, he's obviously taking it seriously, but all of us are, 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 are worried and, pr and praying for Rand. Um, and, of course. Yeah. That, that really does bring it home because some people have even kind of been joking about how the median age of the U.S. Senate is about 150. And so, you know, that's an at-risk population. But of course, uh, Senator Paul in particular is especially at risk here. So I, I suppose everybody should uh, pray for his speedy recovery. Yeah. It's it's you know, one one other actual coincidence I suppose with uh, Rand Paul being out for this vote is he's been uh, so outspokenly say libertarian uh, you know during his political career and conservatives now are struggling with what to think about this bill because yeah. it's so much money you know it's the biggest package like this ever in American history but this is a a totally novel circumstance how should conservatives be looking at this. Um, look, I've struggled with it. Every conservative has struggled with it. Two trillion dollars is a ton of money. Um, I think the magnitude of the challenge we're facing justifies it. Hmm. Um, and I also think it's very different. I mean, some people are trying to draw the analogy to TARP, to, to what happened with the 2008 financial crisis. I think they're dramatically different. Uh, and the biggest reason they're different is, is the financial meltdown was caused in very significant part by misconduct by the financial services firms who, who, who were taking undue risks, who got all the upside. If they made money, they got rich and, and, and got to enjoy the blessings. But then when it all cratered, the government had to step in and help them. And so it, 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 it felt very right. much like a rigged game. Yeah. Um, this is a very different circumstance because the people that are getting relief here, 
they didn't do anything to cause the coronavirus. It wasn't their conduct. You know, the the individual waiter who's been laid off, it's not his fault that right. that this started in Wuhan and spread across the world. It's it's not the fault of of the guy who owns the local movie theater. Um yeah. and 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 so I think that's different. I think it's also important that if you look at how this is structured, um, you've got the individual grants, which, which are very important relief. You've got the small business piece, which is very important. If you look at other elements of it, so there is $100 billion in this directed to hospitals and healthcare providers. Now, look, in the coronavirus circumstance, hospitals are panicking. They need to expand their capacity. Right. $100 billion for hospitals you know, God forbid you have circumstances where we need to wrap, ramp up quickly. That is almost the very definition of emergency relief for this crisis. You've got sixteen oh, $16 billion for protective gear, for ventilators and medical supplies. That, again, is, is, is crisis appropriation. You've got $150 billion for state and local governments to meet the coronavirus, and it's limited so that it goes to coronavirus spending on the state and local level. Um, hmm. All so, of that, so you're saying that the states and the the cities they can't just spend it on whatever pet project they want. They there actually will be some checks on how they can use the federal money. I hope so, or maybe but, not. But let, look, th- let me throw in a caveat. This bill is massive. It was yeah. drafted really quickly. Um, we're going to find all sorts of ugly things there as it rolls forward. So when mm-hmm. it comes to the constraints on the states. At least as it was relayed to us, as we understood it, it was intended to be just coronavirus spending. Can I promise that there won't be states frittering the money away? No, but they are facing a massive and unprecedented health crisis. So so, so the intention was give them the funds. And that was one of the big Democratic holdouts and demands also, is they wanted money uh, for for the state and local governments. And that's one of the big things that, that was added, that was expanded in the last couple of weeks. The part that is deemed the most controversial uh, is there's $500 billion for what's called the Stabilization Fund. Now, that's what the Democrats have been characterizing as the big corporation bailout. Right. Um, Listen, of all the parts of the bill, that's the part I I have the most concerns about. But I do think there are differences, even in that part, from, from, from a bailout. Almost all of that is structured as loans. So, so, so what are the components of it? Um, the components of it, you've got $450 billion that basically goes to the Fed to make loans across the economy. And, and it's designed for the Fed to leverage it up. So mm-hmm. that $450 billion is expected to result in about $4 trillion in additional capital. So now, I'm, now, I'm sorry, p- p- pardon my economic ignorance. How does that work? Uh, so the Fed will make loans, will make loans that will go out to businesses, to companies all through the country. And, you know, look, in thinking about how to respond to this crisis, I, I tried to talk to a lot of experts, to conservatives who, who I know and respect and trust. So one person I called is Art Laffer. Art Laffer yeah. is a good friend was Reagan's chief economist, helped design the Reagan tax cut. The Laffer curve, you may, you may recall, uh, he drew on a napkin that laid out the principle that if you raise taxes too high, tax revenue will go down. And in that right. circumstance, if you lower the tax rate, you can actually, the federal government collects more taxes because of incentives. Art is a strong conservative, a great friend. I, I called Art and said, all right, wh- what should we be doing? This is, this is an economic catastrophe. What, what 
what should a conservative be doing? And Art focused on two things. He said, number one, we should do a payroll tax holiday from now to the end of the year. Okay. Payroll tax is about 7.5% paid by the employee, about 7.5% paid by the employer. We should just say nobody has to pay it from now to the end of the year. That would create enormous incentives for work. Mm -hmm. Look, it harkens back to the fight we had over the unemployment compensation, the disincentive for work. I'm very focused on hmm. incentives for work. Right. That makes sense. By the way, half of that proposal is in this bill. One of the things that is included in this bill is from now to the end of the year, employers don't have to pay their half of the payroll taxes. They have to repay it in 2021 and 2022, but it defers those tax payments, which means for a, an employer, it lowers the cost of employment. It makes jobs less expensive. That, that is mm. a good supply side step in terms of tax relief. But the other thing Art said, and, and this was important, he said, listen, the most dangerous thing in a liquidity crisis is you don't want it to become a solvency crisis. Now, now what does that mean? That means your customers have dried up because the government is making people stay home and, and suddenly your revenue is plummeting. Yeah. And you can't meet your basic bills. You can't meet your payroll. You can't meet your mortgage. You can't meet your rent. And so when you face a solvency crisis, you've got to suddenly sell stuff on the cheap. You, we don't want to see the airlines suddenly have to auction off all their planes for 10 cents on the dollar. That, that would take a temporary crisis and turn it into catastrophe. And, the pro and so what Art said is, you want to have liquidity in the system. You want to have people being able to get a line of credit, companies able to yeah. get a line of credit so they survive the catastrophe. And, and so that was his, his principal recommendation, which has been ac echoed by a lot of conservative economists I've talked to. That $450 billion is designed to do exactly that, to, to, to make it— You don't want to take this acute problem and have it lead to very long-term— uh, economic catastrophe because we were too cheap to do what we what we had to do in the moment. Uh, th th that's exactly right. Now, all of that is, is are loans. Those are not grants. So nobody's getting a, a a special payment that they get to keep. No one's getting bailed out in that sense. All it means is they're able to go and get a loan, and they're able to get a loan. Think about it. If you, let's say you you run a hotel. Um, I talked to several hotel owners who described, like one said their, their occupancy rate was now 6%. Look, 6%? Wow. You couldn't go get a loan. I mean, it, it, a hotel is not a going concern with 6% occupancy rate. Now, it won't yeah. always be. It didn't used to be. And when the crisis is over, presumably it won't. But who would want to see every hotel auctioned off at a foreclosure sale? And all that would mean is whoever happened to have capital would suddenly have a, a windfall, be able to acquire, you know, let's go buy the Waldorf Astoria for, for 10 cents right. on the dollar. <laughs> that actually doesn't help the economy or anything to right. force every business owner to sell their assets. And, and so the liquidity is basically giving someone the capacity to get out of it. Now, look, there may be some failures. There's some taxpayer exposures. So the liquidity is not cost-free. Yeah, but but it is not. It's designed to be broad based enough that hopefully it won't be the government picking winners and losers. Now, well, it, it does sound very different in that way from the 2009 uh, federal spending that we saw. Yes. Now, now there are two exceptions to that, one of which uh, is more problematic than the other. So there's 17 billion 
that is carved out, they say, for nationally security important companies that basically okay. everyone knows means Boeing and, and maybe GE. Yeah. And, and they, they were pretty candid about we're just writing it to help. And listen, Boeing has all sorts of problems that had nothing to do with the coronavirus. And, 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 yeah. and, and I, I fought hard against that, the, the Boeing and GE money. I argued against it. I stood up in conference and, and I mean, blasted my colleagues. And you know what? We couldn't get it out of the bill. The Re- yeah. And the sad thing is the Republicans wanted it in, and so did the Democrats. Hmm. The second industry-specific component is airlines. And airlines, it's interesting. You know, the Democrats' talking point, which all of them are saying, is this is all corporate welfare for Republicans. They want the big corporations. Here's the irony, Mike. The corporate welfare increased because of the Democrats' demands. So the Democrats are entirely (laughs) posturing. So let's take, for example, the airline portion of it. So there was $58 billion, and the Republican bill that we had, actually the bipartisan bill that we had that we're going to vote on on Sunday, there was $58 billion for airlines, but it was all in loans. It was 100% loans that they would have to pay back. The Democrats, in the last three days of their negotiations, they insisted that 50% of it be grants, that it be direct <laughs> grants rather than loans. So the next time you see, if you listen to any of the Democrats rattling on about, they're the ones that fought for the grants instead of the loans. Right. You know, uh, you you don't you don't see that reported in much of the mainstream press. Actually, you don't see much of any of this that we're talking about right now reported in the mainstream press. Senator, we're already over time, but I uh, just before we go, do you have a sort of thirty second takeaway beyond everything we've talked about for the American people while they're looking at this crisis and while they're looking at this relief package? Listen, this crisis is extraordinary, but we're going to make it through this. We're going to make it through the public health side, and and people are scared. I get it. People are frustrated about being at home. We will make it through this, but we'll also make it through the economic challenges. I mean, people are worried now. You and I have never lived through a Great Depression. We've never seen 20%, 30% unemployment. I don't know if we will see that or not. I, I certainly don't want to. I hope that this emergency relief package helps. But, but the way we stop the economic devastation is we solve the pandemic, is, is that we contain it, is that we develop effective vaccines and treatments. We need to do that. And, and my focus and priority is stopping this pandemic, but also ensuring that we have an economy that can keep going, going forward. We don't want to see every small business in America destroyed in the process of keeping us safe. So, so we got to do both. And, and that they're going to be challenging days ahead. Yeah. But but it's worth remembering, listen, America is a great country, and we're great because of the character of the people. Uh, we have overcome challenges before. We've overcome world wars. We've overcome 9-11, and we will overcome this. And and, and that, I'm inspired every day by, by the heroism of the American people, and that's what's going to take us beyond this challenge as well. I agree. And and part of the way that we will recover is by staying healthy. And Senator, part of the way you stay healthy is by getting enough sleep. So we've got to let you get out of here and go back home and get at least a few hours of sleep. Uh, there's so much more to cover. I guess we'll just have to get to it next time. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.